What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 88 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have learned to lead with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you, as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. Well, today, I just want to start this conversation today by saying thank you. Thank you to each of you that have subscribed. Thank you to each of you that have not only just listened, listened, to each episode, but you've bought in the emails, the text I get from so many of you saying, thank you for talking to so-and-so. Well, from me to you, thank you for listening because you make this thing happen. If you are listening and you have not subscribed yet, boy, take a second, hit pause, go and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen, because it really does help you never miss an episode, but it also helps us climb up the charts so more people can find out about spiritual leadership and learning to lead with their faith out in front. I just received a review on iTunes. Uh, The phrase was, love the no filter. This is a great podcast. It's exactly what I've been looking for. A podcast of leaders, different scopes of life, given their testimonies and advice. Thank you, Mike. No, thank you. Thanks for listening in because you you guys make this whole thing worth it. Well, today has been one that I have looked forward to for so, so long. There are certain people that are out there. they're, They're the big fish. You know they're out there. You just don't know how to go fishing for them and find them. Well, through a good friend at North Star, Brandon Wood, who played for this gentleman at the University of Georgia, he was able to make the connection. And we had a phenomenal time sitting down. You, For those of you that know me, know that I am a big Georgia Tech fan. But I am also a big Mark Rick fan. And while he was patrolling the the sidelines of the University of Georgia, it used to just irk me because I'm thinking that's the kind of guy every parent wants their kids to play for. He's a phenomenal football coach, two SEC championships, five SEC division titles, even as the coach at Miami during his short time there, one Atlantic Coast division title, two-time SEC coach of the year, Walter Walter Camp, Coach of the Year, former college football player at Miami, coached at Florida State with Bobby Bowden, and then, of course, coached at the University of Georgia for many, many years. But what everybody knows Mark Rick for is more than just being a great football coach. He's an incredible man, an amazing leader, and even more importantly, a sold-out Christ follower who doesn't wear his faith on his sleeve. He lives it out of his heart. You are going to be inspired. You are going to enjoy, and you are going to be blessed. So I want you to pull up a chair. 
And I want you to listen in to my conversation as football in college is kicking off right now with the one and only Coach Mark Richt. Coach Rick, thank you so much for joining me in this episode of Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you, sir. Good to be here. I appreciate you having me on the show. Well, you have accomplished so much. And man, I look back at, and I'm a Georgia Tech fan, so this is stuff. It's tough. <laughs> you took, it took us to the woodshed quite a bit. When, when you look back at your life and your career, is it hard to even believe all that happened as you look back in the right. rearview mirror now? Well, you know, there's 35 years of coaching when you count one year of high school and one year at East Carolina, but I was you know, 15 years at Florida State, 15 years at Georgia, three years at Miami, and uh, just played in so many big, big games. Uh, just just that part of it, when you look back and you get on YouTube or, you, or you're watching a network that's showing old games and you're like, wow, that was, that's pretty spectacular. Uh, not so much what I did as a coach, but just to be in those games, in those big moments. Uh, you know, national championship games, conference championship games, and then just rival games, rivalry games that meant so much to so many people. So there was, uh, it was fun to do that. And then you think about all the people. That's right. You know, I'll watch a game and and I'll I'll, pu- I'll push pause and take a picture of a kid that I hadn't seen in about four or five years and text him a picture of himself on the screen back in the day kind of stuff and just getting to brighten their day. It's kind of fun to do that too. But, uh, you know, we, we, uh, ate and uh, drank and, and slept it pretty much in our family, but, uh, it was, it was a good time. You know, you look back at how you grew up, your dad wasn't a football coach. Your dad was a blue collar worker, worked hard. Right. What did your family pour into you that you were able to live out later? What was something that your parents put into you as a young man growing up and growing up out in the Midwest and then eventually moving to Florida? Right. What are some things you got from them growing up? Right. Well, my dad for sure uh, taught me about integrity. Mm. Um, I mean, people actually called him Honest Lou. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, he just was a straight shooter and uh, believed in uh, being a man of integrity and always telling the truth and doing what's right. And uh, he, was, he was very, uh, mostly a quiet man, but, you know, I learned a lot about just how to be a man of integrity from him. And then my mom was pretty simple. I think uh, unconditional love was what most moms give. And uh, my mom was no different in that. And she showed me what that looks like. And uh, it was a good mix for sure. You know, you you end up in high school transferring down you end up growing up in south florida during your high school years and i know you were called all turnpike your senior year you had offers from everywhere and you got to go play for the legendary howard schnellenberger university of miami how was the college football experience compared to what you thought it would be how how was that as a young man right so highly touted coming into it well, you have a plan. I, like, I had a game plan. I was going to start as a freshman and be All-American my second year. My third year, I was going to win the Heisman and turn pro. So, uh, you know, I, that, I guess it turned out a little bit different than I thought I would was going to have uh, happen. Uh, obviously, Jim Kelly was there. 
during the time I was there. And he kind of started living my life, which was rough. <laughs> and uh, I'm still, well, I can't say I'm mad at him now, but it took a long time to get over that. Uh, but uh, we, me and Mike Rodriguez, another quarterback that was there at the time, we used to call him Lucky Jim because it just seemed like everything went his way. You know, he'd throw a deep ball in practice and hit the free safety right in the hands, should have been a pick, and it, he'd bobble in the receiver, catch it on the dead run, and score a touchdown, you know. And I mean, I'd throw a perfect spiral to my receiver, he would bobble in, and DB would snag it and take it to the house. So uh, we just felt like Jim got lucky to beat us out. But uh, anyway, it, it was um, it was tough to not get your way, mm. and uh, a lot of a lot of good life lessons. That uh, just because you did what you thought you were supposed to do doesn't automatically mean you're going to get what you think you, you deserve. And uh, so that was that was tough for me. It was a humbling time, but I needed to be humbled. Uh, truthfully, uh, I was a very self centered guy, very selfish guy. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was, it was back in college when a, a teammate of mine actually had changed his life through a decision for Christ. And I got a chance to talk to him one summer about it and, and uh, thought it was about time maybe I should do that. I was very attracted to what had happened, the, the peace that he had in his life that uh, he just never had had before. I, you know, we were both going down a bad path, and all of a sudden he, he had changed, and I asked him what it was, and he told me it was his, you know, that he came to know Christ. And so I was thinking that was maybe what I should do, but I was kind of more worried about what my other roommates would think and what my girlfriend might think. And you know, I was more worried about what man thought than what God thought, which mm. was pretty stupid at the time. So I kind of postponed that decision for Christ during my college days. But uh, it, it was a great learning experience. And a humbling experience for me, for sure. Was that the first time you'd really experienced adversity athletically on the field, going to college, and and now it's not working out like you thought it would? Right, it, it was. Um, had a lot of success growing up. You know, we always made the all-star teams, things like that. Got a chance to play. You know, always, a, always a starter. Always playing ball. Even in high school, we. Uh, Boca Raton High School went to the state championship uh, playoffs for the first time ever, and we actually lost in the semifinals. But, um, you know, we we just had a tremendous run. Uh, and then you go to college thinking everything's going to be just the way you expect, and then you run into some competition that uh, is different. At that point when your career ended, did you know during that time coaching's the route I want to go? This this is right. the, this is the career I want to chase. Well, you know, I did get to play uh, a little bit when Jim Kelly got hurt, and uh, then we had our little pro day, and Jim had to prove he was healthy. So I was in there throwing <laughs> throw for throw with him during our the pro day when the getting ready for the draft, and I thought I was doing just as good or better than Jim that day. And thinking they, they think he's a first rounder, I'm surely going to get drafted somewhere high. And uh, as it turned out, I didn't get drafted at all, but I, I did get a shot as a free agent uh, with the Denver Broncos. That's right. Uh, so I, I get a call from my agent and said, hey, you didn't get drafted, but you did get uh, a chance to be a free agent. So there are a couple of teams are bidding on you. I go, okay, tell me, you know, show me the money. And uh, as it turned out, Denver wanted to offer me eight 
comma zero 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 point zero zero signing bonus. Uh, six figures, man. Uh, so it was eight thousand dollars signing bonus to go there over the over Pittsburgh. They wanted to give me six grand. So I go to Denver. I get in town. Uh, I spend time with my uh, uh, rec- recruiting coach, so to speak. Uh, John Hadle was the gentleman, actually. I think he was coaching receivers at the time there at Denver. He said, hey, tomorrow we're going to meet Coach Dan Reeves, the head coach, and you get to come by the facility, and it's going to be a great day. Well, he, after dinner, he dropped me off at the hotel, and I turned on the TV. There was a news flash that said John Elway had just been traded from the Colts to the Denver Broncos. <laughs> and uh, so I'm thinking, here comes uh, lucky John Elway. And uh, so, I, you know, that next day, I didn't meet, I didn't meet the coach. I didn't meet anybody. It was, it was John Elway day, man. He was there. I think I might have met John Elway. That was about it. So I, I lasted about a week there in that camp, got cut pretty quick. And uh, then the next year, next offseason, uh, got a chance to go with the Dolphins. And I never forget going in that locker room and walking in there and seeing my number nine. I was looking at the lockers. I saw locker number nine with my name on it. And uh, the equipment man came in there and said, hey, are you, are you right? I said, no, it's rigged. He goes, whatever. He goes, you're going to get cut anyway. I said, what do you mean? I just got here. He said, every player that ever has number nine gets cut. I was thinking respect because that was my college number, right? That but, is uh, great. Anyway, then I went to locker t- 10, locker 11, locker 12, locker 13. Guess who was in there? Lucky Dan Marino. So, uh, anyway, I was the fourth best quarterback in the world at the time. <laughs> no, just nobody knew it. So, at the end of that, uh, with the Dolphins, uh, I did at least do well on the quarterback test. Don Shula was the head coach. Dave Shula yep. was the quarterback's coach, his son. And he had given us a test, and I did well on the test. And and uh, he said, you might ought to consider coaching. <laughs> so that's kind of how the coaching bit started. I love that. You know, it's, it is just bad luck. There's no telling what could have happened with your career with any other organization if you hadn't been behind Elway and Marino and Jim Kelly. I mean, a bunch of yeah. no-names like that. Yeah, well, I think God knew I was going to coach quarterbacks, and I didn't know what a good one looked like by looking in the mirror, so I had to – see those guys and it it helped me understand what it took to be great. You know what? I love that thought though, coach. I I was able to play college baseball for Bobby Richardson up at Liberty. And I know coach, all he knew was winning. And so when he would teach something, it was from the perspective of the Yankees. How did it, how did it help you as a coach knowing what guys were going through because college and you had a great college career and threw for a lot of yards in spite of playing behind Kelly. How did it, how did it help you as a coach, a young coach coming in to have experienced the adversity and playing behind some of these guys that you had? Well, first of all, just playing the position helped. Mm. And even just being in those NFL camps, you know, you're not there really just, I mean, I was there in camp for a week, but you actually spend an entire uh, summer uh, working out with the team and learning the system and all that kind of thing. So that happened with Denver and with Miami, with the Miami Dolphins. And it just so happened, uh, you mentioned Howard Schnellenberger, my coach at Miami. Well, he was the offensive coordinator of the Dolphins when they won 
when they went 17 and 0 and won that Super Bowl. So he took the Miami Dolphins system and brought it to college football. So I learned that under Coach Snellenberger. Then I learned a little bit more when I was with the Dolphins. And then when I became, when I became a graduate assistant quarterbacks coach at Florida State, I actually had a lot of knowledge about the passing game, the pro passing game in particular, rock concepts, protections, hot side adjustments, just things that uh, not everybody knew in the college right. game. So it, it helped me great, gain some credibility with the coaching staff, uh, but also with your players. I mean, one thing about players is if, if they think you can help them get better, they think you can help them uh, get a chance to do, you know, reach their full potential, then they'll listen to you. Mm. And, they, you know, going back to, you know, being a backup and having empathy for the guy who doesn't win the job, you know, because you could have a room full of quarterbacks. You might have three or f- to five on scholarship. And only one can start. And the other guys might be waiting in the wings or another guy might be like I was sitting there uh, just being the backup and being ready to go just in case they needed me. So it, it was easier to empathize with guys that were struggling with not being the man because I'd been through that myself. You know, here you end up at Florida State with with the legendary Bobby Bowden and you're you're working there as a grad assistant. And in 1985, you had a you had a you had a come to Jesus time. You had a time where that seed, that former teammate planted, really Coach Bowden poured water on that seed. Talk to us a little bit about what happened that night yeah. where all that came together. Well, I do think it was, it might have been 86, but it was, I, I got there in 85, but I think in 86 is when this happened. But uh, it was actually during the second season at Florida State. And uh, it was an open date early in the year and a, and one of our, uh, there, was a, there was an on-campus party. And a long story short, Pablo Lopez, one of our players, ended up getting shot and killed at that party. And uh, it may not have been the very next day because everybody was kind of out of town a little bit. Some were in, some were out of town during the open date. But as soon as all the players came back in town, we had a team meeting, which uh, I was in there, you know, kind of calling roll and, standing in the back of the room just to make sure no one's in there that shouldn't be there type thing. And uh, Coach Bowden addressed the team about what had happened to Pablo. And, uh, you know, Coach basically said that, you know, Pablo, he didn't know where Pablo was right now as far as where he was going to spend eternity. He didn't know where he was in his faith journey. And uh, he said, men, you know, I believe there's a God in heaven who created us, who loves us, and and uh, he wants us all to go to heaven, but the only way we can get there is being perfect. And, and when Adam sinned, sin entered all man, and we got no shot other than, apart from Jesus Christ, and that's why he sent his son Jesus to, uh, you know, die uh, on our behalf and take on our sin and, and make our spirit 100% perfect in God's sight. And uh, so he said, men... That chair right there is where Pablo used to sit. You guys are 18 to 22 years old. You think you're going to live forever, just like Pablo did, but you're not. He said, "He said if that was you last night instead of Pablo, do you know where you'd spend eternity? And so I'm in the back of the room. He's talking to the players, and I'm in the back of the room. And like you mentioned, all those seeds that were 
planted back in my college days came to fruition. And I'm like, I know where I'm going. It's not a good place. And mm. Coach Bowden invited any player to come see him in his office anytime they wanted to about it. And so that very next day, I knocked on his door and he said, come on in, buddy. And he, he calls you buddy when he doesn't know your name. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> now he might have known my name by then. But anyway, uh, I said, Coach, I know you were talking to those players, but I need I need Jesus. And uh, so I prayed to receive Christ with him that day. And uh, obviously, next to my dad, he's the most influential man in my life, Coach Bobby Bowden. What made him so influential? I mean, we all watched him as an outsider, but being on the inside, we we knew about his faith. What made him such a powerful influence in your life, Coach? Well, you know, he um, he preached faith first, family second, football third. And a lot of people preach that, but, you know, unless you live with a guy and work for the guy, you, really, you know, it's the actions that make it all come to life. And, uh, you know, one of the things that he did, just one of the things he did, was uh, we, had a, we had a devotional time prior to every, when we opened every single staff meeting, there was a devotional time and uh, you know, everybody in that room, every man in the room had a chance to say something inspirational. It may have come from the Bible, but we were going to pray every day and acknowledge the fact that as smart as we are, we're not, we need God, you know, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that, that had a big influence on me over time. But the other thing is he, he had in the beginning of every season, what we called a hideaway where we'd go off somewhere and just talk about everything having to do with the program and he would always start each meeting saying that after the devotional that he talked about loyalty he said man we need to be loyal to each other there'll be times I gotta be loyal to you times you gotta be loyal to me and the second thing he said he said if if anybody in here cheats in recruiting I'm not gonna be loyal to that wow and uh I'm, I, I will not back you up if you if you guys do that if you do you're gone and uh, that was music to my ears as a young coach because I, I, you know, I heard all the war stories about things that would happen in recruiting that just weren't ethical, and I didn't know if that's what you're going to have to do to try to survive in the in the in the big time college world. And first thing comes out of his mouth is at least the second thing comes out of his mouth is, I'm not putting up with that. We're not doing it that way. And uh, so those are just some of the examples of how he went about his business and how God, you know, blessed him. At what point during that time there did you begin to think, okay, think God may be preparing me for something bigger. One day I would love to be a head coach because I know you were O coordinator there and really made your mark during that time at Florida State as offensive coordinator. At what point in that did you begin to to think, okay, I think I'm I'm ready right. to take on a program of my own? Right. Well, I never really – went into this thing thinking one day I want to be head coach. I, I would always assess, uh, am I enjoying what I'm doing? Is my family happy? Mm. Uh, am I in a good place working for a good man? I mean, that's, that's kind of how I always looked at things. So, so I never really in the, from the beginning thought that, uh, I wanted to be head coach or had this burning desire to be head coach, but over time with the success that we had and the amount of, uh, you know, interest and offers that I was getting to be head coach. Um, I started thinking, well, maybe that's where God's moving me, leading me to. And so there was a time 
uh, five years prior to when I took the Georgia job, I got offered the Pittsburgh job. Mm. And, uh, you know, my wife and I went to visit and they offered the job and all that good stuff. And, and, uh, I just didn't feel I was, re- feel like I was ready, but I feel like God was saying, you need to get ready. Mm. And, uh, it just so happened that was the year the Georgia job came open as well. And Jim, Don- Jim, Don- Donna, excuse me, Jim Donna took that job. That's right. But my wife said, you know, if Pittsburgh's not the place, where would be a place? And I was like, well, a place like Georgia, a place like Clemson, you know, that would, those schools uh, I'd be very interested in. Well, five years later, uh, when Coach Donna got let go, Georgia did call, and uh, I was thinking this might be it. When you were in private, you, you take the Georgia job, you're beginning this new career, you know, we all know the Vince Dooley era of Georgia, and it had been a while since they had won at that level. As you began to to think about that, what was your prayer of how God would use you there as a coach and as a leader there on right. that campus? Well, first of all, um, my wife is really good at helping me with my why, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. I do. I do uh, very well. You know, she's like, you're not taking this job for uh, fame or glory or money or anything else. You know, we're taking this job because we think that's where God's leading us mm-hmm. to be. And, uh, and really the, the mission that God gave us is to, you know, bless the young men that we're putting authority over and the staff as well. And everybody else connected, you know, when you first become, head coach, you, you know you're going to have influence over players, but you don't realize the influence you're going to have over your staff, uh, over people that are uh, in fundraising, the the boosters, the fan base, the media. Uh, there's so many people that you end up touching and influencing, and you know, for the better or for the worse. Uh, you just don't really understand it. And, and you don't really understand. I remember when I first became – head coach and as a coordinator and position coach, I love to just bust chops, you know, I like to have fun and, and, you know, take a little jab here and there with the guys, just like you would, uh, you know, with your friends and all that kind of thing. And so I, I did that relatively early on as the head coach and it was like, Whoa, <laughs> you know, coach, you know, uh, was getting on to so-and-so or, or it was your, your words, I guess, as a head coach are just so much more, right powerful and influential that you gotta you gotta measure what you say mm. and you gotta be real prayerful about what you say when you open your mouth just like before this podcast we're praying beforehand and I pray before every time I speak because I ask God to guide my words because you never know you're gonna start a fire that's right or you're gonna hurt somebody on accident that you're not even you might have good intentions but you said something really stupid and hurtful and so uh it's it's a different world when you're head coach, I can promise you. You know, your career at Georgia was huge. Two SEC championships, five SEC division titles, two times coach of the year there. You finished your record there, 145 and 51. As you look back at that time, what are you most proud of? What are you most proud of during right. that season at Georgia? Well, I think just how we loved our players, how mm-hmm. we, you know, did things in a way that I believe that God was – pleased. I mean, uh, you know, my goal was that, I mean, bottom line is 1986 when I came to know Christ, 
Um, my life goals became extremely simple. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying life was easy, but it was simple in that my goal was to live a life that would be pleasing to God. And when I laid my head on the pillow at night, I could sleep well knowing that I at least did my very best to do it the way he would be happy with it. And so that's just how we approached everything from how we taught to how we disciplined our team to uh, how we tried to get them to take care of business academically or socially or, I mean, everything we wanted for our sons and daughters, that's the same thing we wanted for our players. And it's kind of how we went about our business. You know, we all know that going into it and then the fire gets going and the heat turns up. Was it hard to keep those things in focus when, when you're in the middle of the SEC season and things are coming down to the wire? Or was it something that you went, no, we stayed pretty centered with that. What would you say? Uh, for the most part, you know, we stayed centered. Uh, you know, even prior to games, uh, you know, my whole career, especially as a play caller and head coach, I mean, uh, I knew I thought better when I was – when I was calm, mm-hmm. uh, some guys could get really excited and think really straight. The more excited I got, I didn't, I didn't think as well in my opinion. So, I mean, I pray for peace. I mm-hmm. pray for calmness. I pray for the ability to process information and make decisions quickly, uh, and in ball games, but the same thing was true, uh, with so many decisions that you have to make as a head coach. And my goal was when it came to decision-making was to have a peace that, this was, the, this was the right thing to do. And some decisions you have time to pray about them and think them through, think them through and, and then be able to make a decision based on what you think God wants you to do. And sometimes you got to make them fast. You don't have time, but, That's right. but hopefully you're well centered in the word and, and you know, with your relationship to God, that, that your natural inclination would be to do something that would be pleasing to God. And when you blow it, you know, you got to own it and you got to uh, confess it to God, confess it to your team, confess it to your, to your staff, even your fan base sometimes uh, when you make a mistake. And I think, you know, people respect that. What disciplines, Coach, did you put in your life that helped you be ready in those moments? So those times you didn't have time to pray about it for two or three days right. and seek <clears throat> the Lord, but you had to make that call. What were daily disciplines you put right. in that you said had me ready? Well, you know, we did have the the devotional every day. And whether I did it or one of my, my staff members did it, I learned a lot from those times. Um, I would get up and get in the Word, usually read a chapter from the New Testament, the Old Testament, and Proverbs. Uh, and then, um, you know, when our children were young, we actually had breakfast together, had a devotion together. That's awesome. Uh, and I would take them to school. We'd start our staff meeting at 8.30 usually. I wanted every coach to be able to see his kids every day, just like Coach Bowden did for us, did for me. Uh, and then just uh, I had a a small group uh, at our church. It was a couple small group that we still are very close to those friends right now. And, and then I had an accountability group of, of about – three men that, uh, three or four men that talked once a week about, uh, you know, making good decisions as a husband, a father, and, and as a man. And then, believe it or not, had another group 
uh, that it was a prayer group that uh, we kind of met once a week as well. And there's some leaders within the community of Athens, Georgia, uh, probably anywhere between eight to 12 of us. But we'd uh, lift each other up in prayer, lift up our community in prayer. It was, it was, it was all about prayer, that group was. That's so good. You know, you, you met a little cheerleader there in college, your college sweetheart. Well, right, I got to you... stop you. <laughs> I got to stop you. Because I know you I know you're reading Wikipedia, right? <laughs> I did see that. Did she know? Was know she not a cheerleader did. there? Well, Wikipedia's got Catherine as a cheerleader, which she wasn't. Um, but um, but I didn't meet her at Florida State. And uh and also the all turnpike label. Oh, that was that, that was it real? No, what uh, that was was my high school coach was talking about uh a defensive end in a triple option play. He's like, I don't care if he's all turnpike. <laughs> he's like, he can't be right. If he goes for the dive, then you pull it and you pick. If he goes for the quarterback, you pitch it. If he goes for the pitch, you go, you run it. I mean, so the all turnpike, I don't know how that became a label that for me. That is so but, funny. But that anyway, so I, once, once you said that, I knew you were on Wikipedia. And then when you, once you said she was a cheerleader, I said, <laughs> That's the only place that is, but Wikipedia is mostly right. I'll say that. That's right. That's right. But Catherine and I met, her roommate was dating my roommate while I was a graduate assistant coach at Florida State. She was still a student. How did you have any idea the difference she would be making in your life all these years later when you guys met? Could you have ever dreamed what a team you guys have become? Well, you know, we became friends before we became an item, so to speak, uh, because we were around each other because, again, our roommates uh, were dating. And um, so we we didn't just automatically start dating, but we we did, after some time, begin to date. And uh, long story short, I knew she was special uh, very early on uh, just as a person and you know, I highly recommend that you become friends mm. first. I mean, she knew everything about me, every gory detail about my life. <laughs> because first of all, I didn't think we'd ever get married. So I'll just That's tell right. her everything as a friend. And after all, she knew every single dark secret about me. She she still liked me a lot, still thought I was maybe a special person. And, and that meant a lot. So, and it came in handy too, when your college buddies would come visit you and trying to tell a story on you and you're like she, she already knows man you can tell her he's like she knows this one I say yes yeah, she knows everything so uh that came in handy as well but you know we became such good friends before we became uh uh you know before we started dating seriously and uh we're best friends today as as uh, empty nesters and I highly recommend being madly in love with your wife when that time comes, because it's, it's a great time. It's a different day when that empty nest phase comes in it. Well, it was. And, you know, we truly were feeling guilty during COVID because everybody was in lockdown and we were in lockdown with each other, but we, we enjoy each other so much Yep. and we happen to live on the beach now. So it was like, <laughs> we felt, we felt guilty that we were having a pretty good time actually. I know our 23-year-old daughter, she lives in Gwinnett. She came home during COVID because their office closed. And my wife and I have our rhythm. I mean, our kids are grown. We've got our own little rhythm. And 
so we're saying, Hey, we're going to, and she's like, well, what are we all doing? I said, no, 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 you're not included in this. We've, right. we've got our own rhythm. Now you, you're, you're busting, right. you're busting up the dance. So exactly. that, that is That's awesome. Good. One of my favorite images of your wife was on the sidelines at Georgia filling up the cups. And I heard her say right. in an interview, that was a way she could serve in a way to know the players. How much of an influence did she have as, as your wife on those players that saw her serving so selflessly on the sideline? Well, they saw that from her and, uh, but they also saw our relationship and how we treated each other and how she supported me and how I loved her. Mm. And, uh, I can't tell you how many players, some during the time that they were, you know, in college and some years later, saying what an influence we had on on them as to what a marriage should look like. And uh, I mean, it's, it's very humbling for someone to say that. And, uh, you know, a lot of times as a coach, I mean, you'll hear something from a guy that you, you never dreamed was paying attention. Hmm. And he was. And, uh, you know, you, you made a difference in this person's life. I've had guys that I've had to discipline to the point of dismissing them from the team and then come back and say, coach, you know, thank you for loving me enough to not let me keep acting like a fool. Wow. Or I'd have guys that uh, <laughs> would call me and apologize for, you know, being an idiot because they're now a coach and they're like, I'm coaching these knuckleheads. <laughs> I was, I'm getting punished for all the stupid things I did as a player, but uh, the relationships of those guys is uh, mm. what really made it all worthwhile. I can promise you. You know, we were talking earlier about a, a gentleman that goes to our church, Brandon, that played for you. Why do relationships mean so much? And I, I don't think people outside college sports understand the depth that coaches truly love their players. Why, why do why is keeping up with those kids even now? Cause I know you and Brandon still keep, he had played for you in years, still keep right. up with each other. Why is that such a big deal to you? Well, when I left Georgia after 15 seasons, I had my seven Oh six number on my cell phone and go to Miami, which is three Oh five. And I got a three Oh five phone for recruiting, but I kept my seven Oh six, uh, because I didn't want to lose all those relationships. And, mm. I've got 15 years of phone numbers of guys that I coached all those years and staff and everybody else. And if a former player ever wanted to get up with me for any reason, uh, I wanted him to be able to find me without having to dig. And, um, but these guys, um, we choose them in recruiting, but they choose us That's as good. well in the college game. And, um, you know, even the walk-ons, you know, they choose to be with you because you mostly because of the head coach and the staff or the relationship with a staff member or another coach. And uh, we do have a tremendous amount of influence on these guys. And uh, they listen to what we have to say. And even more important, they watch what we do and how we act. And, uh, you know, that's something that every coach and every teacher and really every adult should take seriously because everybody's in a leadership role. That's right. If you influence one person, you're a leader. That's and right. uh, so you got to take that seriously. And, and I just really uh, was serious about trying to do it God's way. After, after finishing up after Georgia and Miami, 
are you thankful that you're in a new season without being the head coach of a school? Now you're right. with ACC Network and doing lots of other things now. Is right. it nice being on the other side of coaching, or do you miss it sometimes? Well, it's nice right this minute during the COVID mess. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? We're trying to manage that. Good night. Uh, that's oh. not very easy to manage at all, I'm sure, for coaches across the board. Yep. But um, I can't say that I have a burning desire to go back to coach, but Catherine and I have had discussions. I mean, people do ask still uh, if I'd be interested in – and we always say what we've always said is if we think God's leading us to do it, we'll do it. Um, but right now, I don't see that happening. Uh, I do have this new career, you know, as a studio analyst with the Atlanta ACC Network. Uh, enjoy it very much. And, uh, you know, we are a part of the team you mentioned. You know, I was saying how much I like being on this team and not being in charge of the team. Yep. You know, and being able to uh, encourage teammates and be always be a try to always be a part of the solution and not the problem so i'm enjoying that right now is it is it nice having your vantage point even i'm sure off camera when you're talking to some of these acc coaches being able to encourage them when you know that they're having a rough week or they're discouraged oh, yeah. is it nice to take your experience and use it that way yeah it is no doubt and and um you know there's always an opportunity to either you know, go visit colleges. I mean, I've, I've spoken at a few spring uh, clinics and things of that nature. Um, and, and you'll end up sitting down usually with that head coach and just talking about life as a head coach because it is, it is lonely at the top. Mm. Uh, you know, even the relationships that I was used to as an assistant coach, they're very difficult to have with your staff when you're the head man and it's, it's very difficult on the coach's wife, head coach's wife as well, because it's, it's tough to have deep relationships with the head coach's wife, mm -hmm. with the boss, uh, because, you know, you don't want to spill your guts to the head coach and vice versa. The head coach doesn't want to spill his guts to the staff and cause a fire alarm, you know, that's right. That's right. You're exactly right. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes head coach, the head coach is as good as it gets. And, you know, I, I've got a very dear friend in Mark Fox, who was the head basketball coach at Georgia during the time that I was at Georgia and he's at Cal now, but we keep up a bunch and it's always nice to be able to talk to somebody uh, who's been in your shoes and maybe still is in your shoes. So, uh, you know, I, I get calls from coaches, from time to time and we just we just talk that's so good you know as you are you're at the season of your life your kids are grown you are in this new era as you look back in that rearview mirror of coaching how do you pray if i were to run into one of your players say tell me what coach rick was like how do you pray that they would describe you during that time with you yeah well i just i hope they uh knew that i loved them mm. uh loved them enough to discipline them uh, loved them enough to try to show them the right way and help them understand there's more to life than football. And the, truthfully, the greatest decision you, they can make is one for Christ, you know, mm. one to uh, change their life for all of eternity and maybe uh, also generations to come if they uh, are that godly husband and that godly father 
and, you know, godly son for that matter and brother, uh, you know, hopefully they can help other people come to know Christ. I hope you enjoyed that time with Coach Rick. That was so fun hearing not only old football stories and stories of the game and the greats, but it was even more important and fun to hear about his faith journey, what it was like to meet Christ and how Christ changed his life, how things haven't always gone the best, but yet because of his faith, he knew it would work out for the best. I am so thankful for men like Coach Rick that have not only walked the sidelines and poured into young men the goods of football, but also the things that they can't find many other places, and that's their faith and the things that will last. People like Mark Rick make our world a better place to live and a better place to see differences being made in places you never dreamed they would be made. Thank you, Coach Rick, for living out your faith, for living out your journey, and for being a blessing and sharing with us. Well, our next episode is going to be another fun one. Boy, I tell you what, the hits just keep on coming. We get to sit down with a guest, a prior guest from another episode, but he's got a brand new book out. This book isn't like all his other best-selling books, like In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day, Wild Goose Chase. Double Blessing, Play the Man, Circle Maker. But this one is a book that he wrote with his daughter, and you are going to love the story from Mark Batterson. You are not going to want to miss episode 89. So once again, thanks for tuning in today. My challenge to you is this. Go out and be the leader that God created you to be, whether it's a sideline or or a boardroom, or the kitchen when you get home at night. All of those places need you, and they need Jesus in you. Thanks again for tuning in, and thanks again for living out your faith in the space and place that God has put you. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.